حديد ونار لهم حديد ونار وهم من القش أضعف So welcome back to the Arab Tyrant Manual Podcast. I'm joined by Nasser Wadadi again, and we're following on from the discussion we had in episode 6, where we were talking about a governance crisis in the Arab world, and we only hinted at the idea that this is just a gateway crisis, which is masking an even larger and more critical crisis, which is one of sustainability. So, some figures to explain that. The Arab world's population doubled in the 30 years between 1980 and 2010, and it's projected to double again to 1 billion people by 2065. Estimates in 2010 said that 4 to 5 million jobs need to be created every year in the Arab world just to maintain the same levels of employment. That's not even fixing things. At the moment, we're running at about 30% youth unemployment, and the problem is getting worse because the proportion of population who are youth is increasing. An investment firm a couple of years ago said that Saudi Arabia needs to create over 200,000 jobs a year just to stay competitive. And in the midst of this, the money is running dry. Saudi Arabia ran a budget deficit of between 100 and $140 billion in 2015, $80 billion in 2016, and at least $50 billion last year, 2017. The Saudi financial reserves, uh, which had been accumulated from three or four decades at least of oil sales profits, were at $750 billion in 2014, and within under four years, they were depleted by a third to under $500 billion. The profits of multiple decades depleted by a third in four years. And it's not just Saudi Arabia. Egypt is running a massive budget deficit, and much of the rest of the Arab world is as well. And we'll get into the reasons for that. Other factors playing into this, water stress, The World Resources Institute says that the Arab region is going to be the most water-stressed region on Earth by 2040. All of these issues of unemployment, lack of productivity, changing social dynamics, changing population dynamics, is before we even get into, you know, the, the waves of automation and artificial intelligence hitting the world and creating unemployment. So why is the Arab world in this position? Well, thank you. Thank you again for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you, Ahmed. And I think that like the crisis of the Arab world of governance is that oftentimes when we talk about sort of let's have democracy, let's have some sort of rational form of government, it's not, a, it's not about luxury. It's not like being enamored with these things. These are tools. This is the software that allows you to, to run the, these places in a, in, a, in a way that can provide solutions. You mentioned Saudi, Saudi Arabia's deficits. You mentioned Egypt. I would add Algeria. I would add Libya. Not to mention Iraq. Not to mention the UAE. All of these countries, if you look at their economic models, there is like one way to look at it. One of my favorite ways to explain it is this acronym, DES. Dig, Extract, Ship. That's the business model of an entire region. Of course, there are these attempts to diversify. We're going to uh, cr- like invest in our sovereign funds and invest in the world economy. Fine. Power to you. I'd love for that to succeed. But the fact of the matter is, is that even with that, you, you look at it, what is exactly the Arab world producing? Like, what is the added value that the Arab world has to world, econom- uh, to world economy other than exporting raw materials? Which, by the way, for the most part, are not even manufactured. Like, 
I'll give you the example of my own birth country so that people don't think that I'm picking on others. Mauritania, basically about a third of its GDP comes from iron ore exporting. We've had iron ore for the last nearly 50 years. And it's been, um, Mauritania is one of the, easily the top 10 iron ore producers in the world. Um, as a matter of fact, some of the deposits that we have can sustain production at about 5,000 tons yearly for the next two centuries. What is fascinating about it is, is that it never occurred to these guys to, to say, hey, maybe we should probably start something and manufacture this to increase our income instead of just digging it out of the ground and extracting it and then shipping it raw. This particular case or this anecdote, I think explains explains a lot about like and illustrates a lot about the Arab world, which is we don't manufacture much, and even like sort of these uh, these new propositions of like diversifying, coming up with these uh, long term visions, which by the way, ironically sound a little bit like the <laughs> the the communist and the socialist five year plans. They are looking to invest money in the world economy, in like American, British, Japanese, Korean, onto like sort of startups, companies, um, and beyond. But you look back and you'd be like, okay, great. This is going to generate income, which is good, fiscally speaking or financially speaking. But where are the projects or the economic activities that will provide employment for, for these millions of youth? Do you think it's actually hit home yet that the model of basically parking butts on seats and using public sector jobs as a welfare program whereby we're getting income for free through a rentier economy through our natural resources, whether that's phosphate in Algeria, iron in Mauritania, natural gas in Algeria, or oil in three quarters of the rest of the Arab world, and you basically take that income and create public sector jobs in order for people to just shut up? Has it hit home yet that this isn't sustainable anymore? I think it did hit home because I've uh, been talking to friends and they're telling me um, that, for example, like in Saudi Arabia, they know it. The government knows it. Like they know that they need to shed at least two million jobs from the public sector because they're simply unsustainable. They are guzzling up the budget. And on top of that, they're not their productivity is next to zero. And Saudi Arabia is hardly the, the, the exception here. I saw a stat once. Um, I'm not sure what the origin of it was, but it basically said that the average Egyptian public sector worker does something like 27 minutes of work per day. There's another one I found in an old economic study which said that Libya's state electricity company was producing electricity for 6 million people with 24,000 employees. Morocco's state electricity company just a couple of doors down was producing electricity for 24 million people with 6,000 employees so the Libyan state was a factor of 16 less efficient than Morocco which itself is not a paragon of efficiency. Yes again I think I believe that the the root of all of this is that in the case of Egypt or in the case of Saudi Arabia is that sometimes in the 50s and the 60s first of all in the case of Egypt they were going on this socialist socialist experiment which was a, a total disaster it goes without saying of providing employment using the state as the primary source of employment after having killed the private sector and it didn't work 
it simply didn't work. You ended up with this like huge bloated de- de- bureaucracy that until today still plagues Egypt. And in the case of Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states, Algeria, Iraq, even under Saddam, these are countries that came up with the rentier model, which basically can be summarized the following way. Uh, we give you your livelihood in exchange for your loyalty and for you not to, co- to, to question the political order. And this ultimately created this bloated public sectors that are not really doing much. And part of me actually sympathizes with, um, with the government because they know, and it's, it, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure this out, is that if you cut out two million jobs and you just one day, one morning, you call up people and say, hey, don't show up to work, we just canceled your job, you're going to have an uprising on your hands. You look at the picture and you wonder, what are the alternatives? And the problem is is that we're not hearing any credible alternatives because there isn't a serious or credible economic model out there that or a vision that, that these governments were able to produce in order to answer these questions. So it's basically the inshallah philosophy. Go with the flow. We'll see... Let's hope for the best. Well, any rational thinker, if you look at the figures and the data, some of it you shared at the beginning of, the, uh, of uh, this episode, it's not going to get better. I read an economic paper, which is a few decades old, ironically written by a guy, Biblawi, who later became Egypt's prime minister. He was writing about the rentier state model, and he tried to coin the term rentier mentality. We've called it the kafil mentality before. And he basically says... It's distinguished from conventional economic behavior because it embodies a break in the work-reward causation. Reward, income or wealth, isn't related to work. It just comes by itself. The money is coming into the bank automatically at the end of every month anyway. Therefore, you don't have to do any work. And we're trying to basically break three or four decades of this model being deeply ingrained in the way that the region does business. I think that whoever comes up with a solution to this probably deserves a Nobel Prize because it's, like, it's this intractable problem. Like these governments, not, again, it's like I, I understand them. Like I really do understand the difficulty of this, which is risking social unrest. I'll give you an example. Anwar Sadat, who basically was uh, this larger-than-life figure who in his time came out victorious, well... That's a different story, but let's leave it at that. Uh, from the 1973 war with, uh, with Israel, and he was at the height of his popularity. His opposition was completely muzzled and handled. He decided to, to embark on a liberalization program, you know, the infitah uh, or the openness policy. And at one point, the government decided that they were going to lift some of the subsidies on uh, basic food products. And that was done in, in, I believe, in January 1977. Guess what happened? They ca- like, the government comes out and says, we're going to cut the subsidies. Three days riots. And they lost control over parts of Cairo. And Sadat, who, who was a smart guy, was probably the, smart, the most sort of cunning and shrewd man who's ruled Egypt in the past century, immediately saw the writing on the wall. It was like, nope. Let's cancel this. And until today, like successive Egyptian leaders, Mubarak, Morsi, Sisi, and Sisi, mind you, who is probably the most authoritarian of them all, 
he himself couldn't like didn't dare go all the way with uh, cutting the the subsidies those subsidies are basically eating up a, a significant proportion of um, the egyptian budget and therefore the the gdp they know that they need to cut these things but they can't and same thing for example in morocco morocco also has a version of this it's one of the reasons uh, the monarchy the palace or as they call it in Morocco, Mekhzen, allowed the Islamists to continue winning elections and having a parliament because part of the calculation was let, let an Islamist government start the process of cutting subsidies. Let them take the blame for it instead of us. And it's a common theme, and it's just a theme that comes on the back of you know, the rentier state model and, and the era or the mentality of assured government employment to uh, absorb basically the workforce. It's also the reason you see the strange dance in Saudi Arabia where for the past, well, ever since the Arab Spring broke out, you basically had successive waves of announcing new handouts and bonuses for all state employees. And then they would announce that they're cutting subsidies and cutting scholarships, cutting public sector salaries, shortly followed by another round of bonuses. Like every, every bit of fat that they managed to trim off they put it straight back on uh, because they can't do it. Uh, on the topic of Morocco, by the way, Jordan and Morocco, there was an interesting article in the Washington Post last year, almost exactly a year ago, which basically made the interesting argument that the monarchies of Jordan and Morocco, which have quote-unquote elected governments beneath them, it's questionable how much governing they actually do, but it basically argued that these two monarchies are using elected governments in order to reduce the population's faith in democracy. They allow a government to be elected and then tie its hands and cripple it and allow it to fail in everything that it's promised and, and repeat the cycle a few times until the public firmly believes that democracy is a, is a sham and they will never achieve what they promise. I mean, I think that that's one way of looking at it. Now, allow me to disagree with you. <laughs> Even disagreement is not very polite in our culture but I'm going to go ahead and disagree with myself just to save face. Um, no, you can look at it that way. Certainly, I don't think that uh, these, uh, these monarchies are that strategic and that shrewd. The fact of the matter is, is that functionally, that's what it does. But in effect, in my opinion, what is happening is, is that both the monarchy in Jordan and, and Morocco are using this parliamentary process and the elections and the fact that you know, the multi-party system to really be like sort of a sort of an airbag that absorbs the shock and the popular anger and maintaining sort of this fiction that the king or the ruler is this good guy. It's just the problem is that he's surrounded this bunch of, by a bunch of ineffective, incompetent thieves. Where in reality, like neither in Jordan nor in Morocco, these governments cannot do a thing without the, the consent of the of the palace. And it's oftentimes, actually, the palace just goes ahead and governs and issues decisions and bypass them com completely, especially in the economic realm. It's this uh, cycle of Jordanian prime ministers. The current one's been in office since 2016, so two years. The one before him lasted four. The one before him lasted less than one. The one before him lasted one year. The one before him lasted less than a year, and that was in 2011. The one before him lasted two years. The one before him, two years the one before him, less than a year, um, they're basically being used as disposable sponges to soak up popular anger before they're thrown away. Yes, but to be fair, 
and I'm, 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 I measure my words here, and I take full responsibility for what I'm saying. It doesn't engage you. I actually have a soft spot for Jordan. Why? Because if you look at Jordan, what do they have? Phosphate. That's it. And it's, it's close to, it's probably a living miracle that there is still a Jordan. It's a country that is basically stuck between these giants who oftentimes have been trying to usurp or sort of interfere in Jordan's uh, internal affairs or at times even completely make sure that Jordan disappears, and yet they still stand. It's just a miracle that there is still a country called Jordan. I don't know if you've been lately to Jordan. Uh, I have been there at least twice in the last decade. And it's, it's an amazing place. It's like you go there, the population is young, it's bustling, there are, there are all sorts of things going on. And you still wonder, it's like, how are they even making it happen? How is this place still around? And I think that, again, <laughs> it's a cautionary tale that ultimately one should have a little bit more faith in the populations because, you know, the human spirit, there's no way around it. We've got to survive. We've got to make ends uh, meet. And it's no accident that it was Jordan that produced the first significant Arab startup, you know, Maktoub, that was sold to Yahoo for over $100 million. Um, I don't know if you remember that. That, w that happened around 2009, 2010. And it's, it, it's remarkable because the Jordanians know, unlike their neighbors, like Iraq and Saudi Arabia, who have tons of oil, Syria, which was at some point a, an agricultural superpower, the only thing that they have, it's a little bit like um, the case of Tunisia, the only thing that they have is their population, their manpower, the brains, and they're forced to use it to, to a maximum. In the case of the Jordanians, Again, I will take responsibility for, for what I'm saying, uh, but I would like to point out that the Jordanians went on and created this like massive counter-terrorism and military services industry, wh which brings in hundreds of millions of dollars, capitalizing on the skills of their special forces and their military, and, and, and turned that into a source of revenue. Quite impressive, even though one can and should take issue with many, many of the human rights abuses and violations. Don't get me wrong, I'm not endorsing all of this, but it's just an example of creative thinking and having to rely on, the, on your population and, and facing the reality that you don't have anything of value to sell. You don't have an economic model. So those points which you just mentioned about uh, relying on your population, about entrepreneurship, and even about um, a burgeoning domestic security and counterterrorism industry links us back to how we ended the discussion in episode six, which was the fact that the entire economies of the Arab world together are less than the GDP of Israel plus Italy. What's the big difference here? Because Israel is in the same region. It you know shares many aspects of the same culture. They are our cousins genetically. So what are the differences and what are they doing that the Arab world needs to do? Well, the case of the Israelis is fascinating. It's, um, I think that their advantage that they have is that they have a highly educated and skilled labor force. And that is a result of like a world-class set of educational institutions, like the, the Weizmann Institute, the Technion. These are places that have been, since the creation of the State of Israel, 
they have been busy developing science and technology. And what they understood that, again, they don't have much to sell in terms of digging, digging out of the ground. I mean, what, does, what did Palestine produce anyway? Like oranges? That's it. And they instead, they understood this very early on, and they started compensating for it, creating like this massive technological uh, industrial complex, which was, by the way, fueled by the military. And as a result, they became a, they became a powerhouse when it comes to uh, electronics, comes to cyber warfare. They became a powerhouse producing like Israel's exports of uh, one of their main exports is weapons, high-tech weapons, missiles, drones, surveillance software, facial recognition, GPS, all of it. Israel produces from the needle to the satellite, passing by the missile and the tank. They even produced their own fighter jet, but the United States killed it back in the day. And the lesson here to, is very simple. <laughs> Invest in education, educate your population, and uh, start producing technology instead of simply buying prepackaged stuff and, and using it. Well, the most important thing you missed out there is allow them to do what they want to do, because... Um you have this dynamic in Israel where people basically get an education. They do their service in the IDF for a few years. Often they serve in one of its high-tech divisions. And then they take this expertise, which they get in you know, systems, engineering, software development. And then they go and start up their own companies. Yes. The Israeli military became basically this incubator of talent. Like you mentioned, um, you know, technology and surveillance. Like they have something called 8,200 unit in the military intelligences whose job is simply to uh, spy on the neighbors. And they've developed technologies, surveillance, uh, eavesdropping, electronic interceptions. A lot of the veterans of these units who are already picked up because of their skills, who come straight to the military from high school. After they go through the military, they go back to college, university, and they finish their college education, coming with these skills already built in. And they're able. that's one of the reasons that Israel has this boom of uh, startups. A lot of these people are military veterans who picked up, who, who got exposed to technology, and they took it, and they started building on it. And I think that the lesson here um, from the case of Israel is that, again, invest in your population, invest in education, invest in creating technology. Focus on creating technology instead of importing prepackaged stuff and relying on imports. And that's probably one of the biggest failures in the Arab world. On our side of things, again, remind me, what technologies do we produce? Not much. We dig holes. We dig holes, we extract, and we ship. D-E-S. There's another barrier, though, to people being able to do what entrepreneurs do in Israel and the Arab world, which is basically that we have this environment in which predatory cronyists um, circle, and when they see stuff that they like, they're empowered to basically take it extrajudicially without facing consequences. You have no legal rights. You're probably talking about my favorite class of people in the Arab world. I call them the, the orcas, the killer whales. These are economic elites. If you look at their activities, they don't really produce anything. What they do, they are courtiers of sorts. They are directly tied to the ruling class and oftentimes are family members. And all these guys do is that they hawk on all business contracts all the economic activities in the country, they get to take the first crack at it. Be it roads, construction, 
telecommunications, import, export, you name it. And bit by bit, they take over and they become, they start concentrating wealth and therefore power. The most uh, prominent examples of this is Rami Makhlouf, Bashar al-Assad's cousin. Uh, on his mother's side, Makhlouf and the, fa- the Makhlouf family, 40 years ago, were a bunch of uh, peasants out of Qardaha area in the Syrian coast. And they've never come anywhere near business, let alone be wealthy. Basically, what happened was that half of the Asad, in his late days, allowed them to take over this famous deal with Airbus, the European um, airplane manufacturer. The deal was already handed over to the Syrian businessman expat who was based in, in Austria. And he had signed the contracts and all was uh, ready to go. But then half of Assad and decided to pass it on to the Makhloufs. And the Syrian government contacted Airbus to tell them that all of the transactions in the deal has to go through Makhlouf and not the other fellow. The deal was for Airbus jets for the Syrian state-owned company. Why was it significant? Because... That's how they made the first commission and got a taste into this business. And that's, that was the money that allowed them to later start their empire, which at the heyday of it, basically Rami Makhlouf owns the telecommunications, import-export, malls, you name it. Bank. Real estate. All of it. And Rami Makhlouf is hardly, hardly a special case. Do you remember, Ahmed, um, a few months back, the whole brouhaha about MBS's uh, Ritz-Carlton prisoners. Yeah. You know, those busy Saudi businessmen. Most of them were basically orcas. Yeah. It was hilarious to watch this on the media. Like, again, there's like always this reflexive knee-jerk reaction whenever you, people talk about Saudi Arabia. And they were like, oh, the, ty- the tyranny. He is defrauding businessmen and investors are going to be afraid to come. Well, that's one way of looking at it. The fact of the matter is, is that no one, it struck me that in the reporting, no one asked, how did these guys become billionaires? Here's how they became billionaires. I don't want to name names, but the audience knows. This is common knowledge. You can Google it. So let's say that there's this mega construction company related to a certain family that has been landing for the last 45 years, if not more, all the mega construction projects in Saudi Arabia, including the construction of Riyadh, the highways, you name it. How did they get that? How did this happen? Very simple. The orcas, basically, which are uh, royal family members and princes, would go and corner a meeting with, with these businessmen, sort of, let's say, the construction company family, and they would tell them, hey, there's this tender coming up for this project so and so. Go do the file, put the proposition together, we will back you. And they put the proposition together, and the the said prince, who oftentimes is in a job position, who he himself controls the tender, gives them the tender, and then gets his cut from this commission. That's how these people became billionaires. And often the person who gets the commission takes his cut and then actually subcontracts it out to someone who is actually competent and deserves the business in the first place. Exactly. In, in actually, one of my favorite things is like there's this famous interview with Prince Bandar, 
who used to be the United uh, Saudi Arabia's uh, ambassador for a long time in the United States. And as a matter of fact, he was so close with the ruling elites here that people started calling him Bandar Ban Bush. So he was involved in the uh, the Al Yamama armament deal. It's just this huge armament package. It was like the biggest arms deal for Britain in over 40 years. Like there was this whole huge scandal over this. And some 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 reporter came up to him and tried to confront it, uh, confront him about the corruption. And so Bender looks at the guy and says, "Look at the stuff that we have done. Look where we took our country, what we built in our country in the last 40 years. Compare us to some some of our neighbors who went on a different path and embraced socialism. And look where they are and look what they are. I could say that the total the total sum." the amount of money that flowed flowed in our economy is like 300 400 billion dollars sure if we took 10% of that and it went in what you quote, I'm quoting here Bender it went into what you call corruption so what look at the result the result is basically where we are today with a state living beyond its means and absolutely no way to get back within its means because the population are completely dependent on it and incapable of generating economic activity by themselves. Again, it's very nice and dandy for us to sit down here and start giving the diagnostic on all that what is wrong. Of course, the, the, the $1 billion question is how to fix this. First of all, I personally will confess that I don't have the secret solution to solve all of the Arab world's problems. But based on my experience, I think that there are few small things, step-by-step, little tiny things that could possibly get us in the right path. The first of them, I think, is this, this concept of rule of law. Rule of law is, is probably the first thing that needs to begin changing and, and, and be infused in these, in these societies. Why? Simple. Because for, for us to get over this, I think, self-defeating and failed approach of like sitting and waiting for the state to get its act together and help us, we need to take things into our own hands, which is basically entrepreneurship. But why would somebody work hard and invest time and energy in building something and generating something when they're not even sure that they can keep the fruit of their labor. Why? Because, again, the orcas, and this is a very common thing. This is, I mean, I'll give you an example from Mauritania. Famous case. This was sometime, sometime in, the, in the 90s. This, this guy comes up with this idea, oh, I can bring in cheaper milk and have it shipped to me in the form of powder, and I'll mix it in my factory, and I'll sell it and I'll sell it for a lower price than the competitors. The competitors were the Orcas, regime-backed businessmen. And his product, which in the first round, immediately captured a huge market share and undercut his competitors' sales dramatically. What did they do? They went ahead and they were like, oh, great, sir, here, we love your product. We're gonna buy your entire supply. They went and they bought his entire supply and deliberately stored it in these, like sort of in these storage houses that had no refrigeration, and deliberately left it there in the heat so that the product, the milk, goes sour, goes bad, and then sold it on the market. 
destroyed his brand, destroyed his image. He went and sued, and he sued for the value of his milk product and for the value of the factory. And this happened, actually, this happened around 1988. Do you know how much he got back? Take a guess. Nothing? Zero. Because the court never ruled on the case. It's still pending. And the guy now is, is nearly in his 80s and probably, may God grant him a longer life, he might probably pass without it ever being resolved. <laughs> That's rule of law for you. There are other similar cases in Libya of basically people who tried to import fruit and their ships being impounded in the port and held there until the fruit rotted. Yes. To teach them a lesson. This is for daring to undercut the orcas. So you can see that this is basically, you know, you think you have predatory capitalism is bad in the West. This is predatory capitalism on steroids. And also bearing in mind that a lot of these people are actually military people as well. You know, in, in Egypt, it's actually the military which owns rumored to be up to 40% of the economy. So is Algeria, by the way. The general's sons and brothers-in-laws and sons-in-laws are getting licenses, mining, extraction, you name it. But to, for me to finish the idea is that the or one of the other impacts of the orca is, is that they create this situation where young, skilled labor, people with university degrees and even technical knowledge, they're caught between a rock and a hard place. On the one hand, there's fierce competition to get uh, state jobs, even though that they don't pay well, but at least they give you some sort of job security. Private sector pays you marginally better, but there are a lot fewer jobs. But even if you secure one, you have no job security. They can fire you on the spot. No anything. And it's crazy. So it's starting to become clear why they're unable to make this shift to more sustainable economic models because they're trapped between these two, well, this, this unstoppable force and this unbreakable object. The unstoppable force is global change. You know, whether it's not globalization and economic change, it's the weight of the demographic changes in their own countries and the youth coming up and the massive youth unemployment. But on the other hand, not only have they built these rentier states, which depend entirely on natural resources for income, but there are also no productive industries because the country is being held hostage by the orcas. If you try a reform one way or the other, you're going to upset one of the two sides. If you try and liberalize and get more young people into entrepreneurship and into starting their own stuff, you're going to have to protect them from the orcas. And if you don't give young people an outlet, you're going to end up with this pressure cooker situation that will explode like it did in 2011. Yes. Basically, to sum it up, we managed to do the impossible. We screwed up socialism and we screwed up capitalism. We basically screw up every model that we get. It looks like it. And we've been unable to, to break out of this cycle for the longest time. The last time that there was some form of like rational economic model probably was Egypt before the 1952 coup. But even then, at the time, even though that there was like this liberal, li liberal market, there's a liberal economy, but it was hugely concentrated and the social dividends of it were not touching any significant amounts of the population. The rest of Egypt was basically peasants living in poverty. And it's incredible. And, and on top of this, you have these like sort of cute guys who are coming up, okay, let's try Islamic 
economy. Let's try Islamic finance on top of all of this. Again, one of the, the numerous, incredibly numerous scams out there, injecting God into the economy and the finances. And <laughs> I was looking, um, this is a little bit of a side, side track, but I was looking the other day at this case um, in Canada where this guy went to propose a halal mortgage scheme and of course, the idea here is that for the for for the customers to bypass payment of interests, what he ended up set, setting up, which is the majority of the the bulk of Islamic finance schemes, is that they we're not going to call it interest, right? We will call it murabaha. Help me translate it. I don't know how to translate it in English. I'm not sure what the direct translation is, but I did a a deep dive into this Islamic economic stuff a few years ago. I spent about a year basically studying the textbooks, studying papers, studying the different business models out there, and basically came to the conclusion, which I've since found that a lot of people share, including a lot of people who left the industry, that it's basically an elaborate way of repackaging conventional market liberalism with an Islamic flavor. So you're doing functionally the same stuff with your contract, it's just worded differently and structured differently. And you end up paying more. That was my point about this story. You actually, it's more expensive. You end up paying more as a, as a customer, as a client. And if anyone's interested in this, there's a great book on it called Heaven's Bankers by Harris Irfan. He was basically somewhere near the top of this industry, very closely involved in setting up the Islamic finance branches of a couple of major banks in the West and in the UAE. And he eventually quit the industry and wrote this expose saying, this entire industry is fraudulent. I think that going back to the larger topic is that there is a central idea that we probably should touch on a little bit. I, I kind of mentioned it, which is, I think it's about time as the second step, I talked about rule of law. So the second step to this uh, unsolvable problem, I believe should be introducing the following idea, which is guys, we need to stop relying on the government. We've seen it. The governments are not going to get their act together. And the governments, even if they wanted to, even if they wanted to, and that's a big if, they cannot solve all the problems and provide us with all the solutions. That's the idea. That's the other idea behind entrepreneurship, which is let's start looking at our own problems and try to provide solutions and get paid in the process of providing solutions. And this could be any number of things because I think it's, if you go back, like one of the things that kind of gave me a little bit of a bitter taste back in the day or made me at the beginning of the uprisings is like the famous Egyptian slogan, which is uh, bread, liberty, and social justice. It struck me is, is that who's gonna provide you with the bread guys? The government, the same government that has been subsidizing bread for the last half a century and that is sucking considerable amounts of GDP away from building schools and roads and, and providing better health care? No. But also that's almost explicitly how the model was set up. The model of governance in the Arab world over the last 30, 40 years has been we provide you with bread, that's our job, so don't talk about justice. Whereas, you know, in the developed world, 
you generally tend to think of it as the opposite. The government will keep the peace and provide justice. The economy will provide you with your livelihood. Yeah, so I, I chose to understand the slogan, which apparently I was in the minority. I chose it as we make our own bread. We don't wait for the government to give us bread because that's a losing proposition. If you wait for the government to solve, solve all your problems, you're condemning yourself to eternal misery. Because our governments being what they are, they're not going to get around to pr like sort of to solve all of these problems. And to be fair, these are enormous problems. And we, too, the populations, have a share of responsibility in our, in our own misery. We don't like to say that. I'll probably be shot for saying this. But, guys, somebody has to say it. I'm willing to take the risk of upsetting people by saying that. We do share part of the responsibility because we refuse to give up on this idea of this nanny state government is going to come and provide us for everything and make us live happy and, and recreate heaven on earth. It's not going to happen. Never happened before. Not likely to happen. Well, I can't disagree with you there. I, I should have clarified this. I mean, it's quite obvious. I'm guilty as charged. I'm a fervent believer in market economy. I am fervent believer in, in liberal economy because the facts speak for themselves. Look, look at the amount of people that were lifted out of poverty in the last 40 years uh, around the globe. Look at the wonders of globalization. Um, people tend to forget these things. Like We get fixated on this, on, on this micro aspects, and don't get me wrong, I'm not telling you that this model has no side effects. It does have some side effects and some nasty side effects at that. The orcas, for example, are, are a nasty side effect of this. But it's the best that we have found so far. And it's done wonders. It has lifted anywhere between 1.5 to 2 billion people out of poverty. Look at India. Look at China. Look at Korea. Look at Sub-Saharan Africa. Compare the poverty levels back then. Actually, there was something that I was reading the other day and just completely blew my mind. It was a report or by the um, uh, World Food Program. They pointed out that for the first time in history, since statistics were being kept, there were more obese people in the world than hungry people. So you can say that's a better problem to have. Yeah. I mean... My wife would say, <laughs> I better be skinny than fat. But yes. Probably easier to fix. It's easier to fix. And going back to the point is that we need to take matters in our, on our own hands. I know it's not easy. It's extremely difficult. But something got to give. We cannot repeat the same, more of the same and expect a different outcome. And as you pointed out in the introduction to this episode, all the economic indicators, the social indicators, point, paint one clear picture. We're driving straight to the abyss. The bus already lost its wheels. The, dri the driver is drunk. And we're like 10 meters away from, from the edge. That's where the Arab world is today. So anyone tells you otherwise, I think that they either don't know their stuff, they didn't read the data, they didn't look at the data, or they're simply deliberately refusing to admit reality. Now, I'm open to the possibility that something can happen in between, like on some unforeseen technological development, something that would be a game changer and would change the direction. But, you know, between misgovernance 
corrupt governance and predatory governance and global warming, desertification, the loss of arable lands, the loss of agricultural land, the loss of water, we're heading straight to a disaster. There is a bright side, which is um, even though we've been speaking about the massive youth unemployment rates and the fact that there is no production in the Arab world, we are in a situation where the Arab world or Arabs under the age of 40 are universally literate. And in 2010, there were over 1 million Arab technical specialists and experts living and working in developed countries. So it's not like there is any lack of the human resource. It's just that it needs to be allowed to get to work on these problems. You know, Ahmed, there's a story that blew my mind. Here I was sitting here in America under the protection of the strongest military in the history of mankind, in the wealthiest country in the world, like splitting hairs, trying to figure out what are going to be my next gigs, how am I going to make ends meet and all that stuff. And then lo and behold, I was like going over Twitter and there was like this story about these Syrian kids who are in Duma of all the places, surrounded by the Assad regime, bombarded day and night by the Russians, gassed, starved for the last three years. Do you know what, the, what these kids were busy doing? With their time. What were they doing? They went online and, and enrolled in these Coursera courses, online education courses, and were getting certificates and degrees in programming. It put me to shame to see this. That's like, it tells you something about the indomitable human spirit. And, and that, I think, is the upshot of this entire conversation is that despite all the gloom and doom, we need to have more faith in our people. Like the people will do anything to survive. It's not particular to any human group. It's, it's the sum total of human history. Like this drive to survive and to innovate and to create in, in the face of the darkest odds. That's what really inspired me. It, it really got this light bulb to go, huge light bulb to flash in my mind. It's like, it's gloom and doom. Look at these kids in the middle of one of the most brutal wars. <laughs> they were like, what can I do with my time? I might die any moment. I can go pick up a gun and fight and become another fighter. Big deal. I can sit and wallow in sorrow and self-pity. What did they do? They went online. They got themselves, they became programmers, C++ and Java programmers. There was another story I, I saw about a woman in Mosul when uh, ISIS took it over couple of years ago and she basically sat inside and taught herself five languages in the time it took for ISIS to be unlodged. There are probably thousands if not hundreds of thousands of similar stories that we probably we will never hear of but that's the reality is that that's the power of this information technology revolution that finally people have a recourse they can pick up knowledge and skills for close to nothing in terms of cost they can pull themselves with the bootstraps. And that's an amazing story. And I think that's what I meant by, that's the embodiment of, of my point about stopping to wait for the government to come rescue and save you. Think, what is it that you can do for yourself? And I think that like, if we unleash the Arab world today is like uh, 470 million, 400 the millions and millions of youth out there, I bet you that there is the guy or the girl who already is thinking about how to create the next light bulb that consumes less energy.
thinking about how to get clean water in my neighborhood. How do I clear the sewage? It's these kind of guys that I'm interested in. It's these guys, I believe, who, who will end up saving the day. And I personally have no way of predicting them, but I know that they're there, and I'm just sitting and waiting for them to emerge because they are the ones, in my opinion, who are going to be saving the day. They just need to be given the opportunity. This is a really hopeful note, and we don't end on a hopeful note very often, so I'm going to seize this opportunity. Thanks so much for this fascinating conversation, Nasser, and I look forward to speaking to you again.